This is part two of Paul's review of Joel Salatin's presentation. Uh, next note that I have is that he puts away uh, two years of hay in the fall. So in the, in the fall, he makes sure that he has two, uh, enough hay to get him through two years. But then, of course, if you're only feeding 40 days, then that's 80 days. So that's less than a year for other, other folks. Well, yeah, but it's a lot of hay when you have 1,000 head. And 1,000 yeah. head seems to be what he's doing now. But he's got 500 and some acres of his own, and now it sounds like he's also renting five other farms in the area. Right, that he puts his interns on, I think, and, and they kind of run former interns. Former interns, sorry, for, former interns, and yeah. uh, you know they help run his operation with them. And that was that was another interesting thing is um, uh, his intern thing. So he's got a thing on his website where it's like, you want to be one of my interns, then on August 1st. Or some, I think it was August first. It says on the site, mm-hmm. you submit your desire yeah, to be desire, it, yeah. however you do it, and, um, and then you're going to fill out a form that asks a bunch of questions, mm-hmm. and then um, they get like 300 applicants mm-hmm. to be interned, and then uh, they go through the list of 300 applicants, and they've got. He talked at great length about the process. So they have four people on the farm who will go through all 300. And um, uh, they will pick out um, yes or no. Whole rating process. And they and they've got the system designed where they're not allowed to talk to each other about each of these candidates. Right. And and so the um, the, the, the function of that being is that um, to preserve relationships that already yeah. exist on the, the farm. The whole intern <laughs> process he he spoke about every all their systems for choosing who was going to be an intern and who wasn't was to mitigate arguments within his family. Yeah, yeah. So, it's smart. Well, yeah, I thought it was brilliant. And <laughs> yeah. so basically it's like everybody says yes or no, and then and then they go through the pile, and they usually end up with like 40. And, mm-hmm. they, and that's what they, they're shooting for. They want exactly 40 out of those to be the ones we're going to invite. And so usually it says it's like 38 that'll be like four yeses mm-hmm. from the four different people. And then, the, then they'll go to the pile that has three yeses and one no, and then they'll discuss those to pick out two more to get to 40. Right. Then they'll invite them all out to come out for two days, and, and they're have, offset. And they have to come out on their own. He said, if you don't make it, you don't make it. If you don't get your email in enough time, you don't get your email off in enough time. It's almost like a little bit of a rite of passage. And then what they go through once they're out there sounds like he's putting them through boot camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so giving them the toughest chores, right. and, and it's like... Uh, and just being graded the whole time. I can imagine them out there with a the clipboard kind of taking notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then and then uh, after all 40 have come, and it's like over a one-week thing, everybody gets two days, mm-hmm. spread out over one week, and um, and then they don't talk about any of the interns until after the last one's left, and then they all have a powwow, and then it's like, okay, now they narrow it down to eight. And he said usually they all put their yeah, eight in a eight. pile, and, and like they pretty much come to a consensus about individually, but together on the six. Well, that it seems are like there's six that, that are just that are, that, that, yeah six that are the obvious standouts, and everybody agrees on, and then there's two more that are like um, uh, three out of four want, right. and and then uh, so, so I guess all the, they want eight, they end right. up with eight, and all the pre-preparation it seems like makes the final process such an easier thing. So then the then the then the eight come back, and um, uh, one of the things that happens is is that when they're done being an intern, then um, after I don't know what is it just one season after one yeah I, I think growing season I think it's four months that all eight are there, and at the end of four months, every intern has a list of offers of free land. Oh yeah, and and, and, and farms and, to come and manage and opportunities and and it's like you know. 
And then um, Salatin tries to hang on to two himself. Right, for the full year, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it sounds like, um, but, but it, anyway, and then that, that was the other thing with the curmudgeon factor is, is Salatin says he gets uh, an email every day from somebody who has a farm and needs from to connect. From all over the country. It, yeah, that needs to connect it to somebody to keep it going. Right. And um, they're willing to give the farm to the person, mm-hmm. sort of, kind of, right. you know, for the right person. But I imagine that they'll give it outright to somebody that's one of a, a pick from Salatin. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, like going to Yale or something like that for farmers. I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, Salatin says you do your calving when the deer in your area are having fawns. Right. That's when you want to plan for your calving, and it's usually the 1st of May. Um, and he he go he went into a great deal of detail on why he believed this, and um, so uh, it has to do with the life cycle of, of grass and yeah. and when it's going to be the most um, you know nutrient dense and, and have the most the the flush you know which is essentially that spring flush and, and you know that's just observing nature and seeing what those animals are doing uh, whatever that is in in your bioregion, whatever well, that is. See, now, all, all kinds of uh, uh, ranchers are, believe that they're aligning with nature and optimizing <laughs> that as well. And so there's this perpetual debate about right. when to do your calving. So there's a lot of people who do their calving in January or right. February. Which and is so, common in our area. So, so Salatin's saying 1st of May. And, and he's got all of his reasons for it. And, of course, there's going to be a lot of debate and things. But I think... I think, if nothing else, aligning with nature in such a way to be able to say something like, um, you know, hey, well, when are the local deer dropping their fawn? Right. Or and, moose, or whatever you have yeah, in the yeah. area. And, and I thought that was, that was a pretty smart thing right there. Um, and so, anyway, but yeah, the, and then there's the thing about the spring flush and with the grass and when, when it's doing its, most of its growth and when you need to have most of the food, mm-hmm. and, and, which is the same thing that all ranchers argue about. Um, <laughs> but they're feeding uh, 120 days a year, and he's feeding 40. The next thing I've got written down here is white-collar salary. Now, I, I think white-collar salary is 100000 a year. Uh, what, do, what do you think a white-collar salary is? I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. Uh, generally, you know, depending on where you live, I guess. But uh, I, I know a bunch of uh, software engineers that um, have good, you know, reasonable engineering skills, terrible professional skills, and they don't deserve a white collar salary, um, and so they get like forty five thousand a year. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's kind of like, but you know what? If you play the professional game, you can get a quarter million a year. But you know, leaving that aside, let's just say that the mission is, and the mission that he tries to point out is a white collar salary. He doesn't specify a number, but I'm as he's going through all this stuff, I'm kind of thinking like, if you're not trying to you know figure out a way of getting a hundred thousand dollars a year, then you know you're just signing up for poverty. Right. And and that kind of leads to the thing of um, uh, his experiences with um, the farmers market. And now my he, he basically said that okay they were able to build some clientele at the farmers market and stuff, but overall not worth it. it yeah. He, he said it he was way too cumbersome. Anymore. It was cumbersome. It was complicated. There's drama. Yeah. He talked about the drama, and then it was like you're just not making much money. Right. Yeah. It's I like am. you know your the, the amount of interaction you have is just very little, and um, it's like at the end of the day you just haven't sold much. Right. And not to mention all the the what has to go into it depending on where you're at. Where we're at, you have to have someone come out and inspect your property for the five or ten things that you told them exactly that you're going to grow. 
and, and then you have to apply to be in the farmer's market. And then there's the whole, so what, what they're getting at is that there's a whole long drawn out process that could be, you know, cumbersome and, and take forever and cost you money along the way. So, right. it's definitely something he does not like doing. Right, he's found better ways, right. and and so um, I, I thought that was interesting because so many people like have this fantasy that they're gonna they're gonna you know sell stuff at the farmers market, but I I think the Ask most, most people who are in a farmers market for, right, for, yeah, and so you'll get the same answer from for, them all. For I mean, when you you're gonna make the most money if you do it yourself, right. and for um, the most successful people that I've ever talked to that have done farmers market, it's like. $9,000 a year is the biggest number I've heard for like going to the market every every time there's market and at the same time you know you're one of the best sellers at the market mm -hmm. and um, you know it's, it's $9,000 a year now for some people it's like $9,000 a year is that's that's big money <clears throat> um, and and for I but that's not a professional wage $9,000 a year is not a professional wage that's one month of our a fictitious white collar salary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, let's let's try and, and think think bigger here. Um, uh, oh, um, at these farms that he rents, and so then um, he's got his 500 acres, and then there's these other five farms that he rents nearby, and you know he does all kinds of different you know grazing and pig and mm -hmm. operations, and the farmers are just not doing anything there, and they really like it, or some of them are doing some things. But it's like, oh yeah, if you run your cattle through here too, then then that helps. That makes things better. And so we'll uh, rent out some of this land for you, and and it works out for us this year and stuff. And, and he spoke about his interns there, and that them also using those edge pieces to help supplement their income. And he gave a really good example of uh, one young intern who um, made something like twenty grand on lumber that he milled in, in that area. Uh, and another guy was running um, chickens, I think, and, and another guy was doing dairy cattle. Right. There was like all these other industries that were being overlaid on top of the, the farm. While they were still and, doing and, what Joel Yeah, and, and so um, Joel was saying there is not a farm in the nation that is leveraged past 10%. Right. You know, and it's like each, every farm, every, every farm can be... Um, uh, uh, there's there's more money to pull out of it without having to buy more land and and so and he kept using these as examples like if I do this then I'm making this much more per acre and it costs me this much per acre to get it set up one time and it's like you know so he's saying oh I, to do this industry it costs me forty dollars per acre to set this up and it's like but that's cheaper than buying you know another uh, hundred acres I can't buy a hundred acres at forty dollars an acre right instead of going bigger, 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 bigger to try to chase that market down. It's, you know, stacking things on top of each other and, and trying to get more out of that one acre or uh, or that each acre. So he's stacking lots of stuff and he's oh, yeah. saying that he doesn't, he thinks he's only 10% leveraged, that that it, he's, he's, you know, he needs to be more creative and have more interns and more, well not interns, more people who want to like, he, he'll enter into a business, and that was their thing he kept talking about. Yeah. It's like, I can't do it all. And in fact, there's like 80% like of the stuff, I don't even like doing it. And I, it's like, on the other hand, I can find somebody else who loves doing that thing, right. and I'll enter into a relationship with them. We'll, we'll strike a deal. He kept on saying, sometimes one plus one equals three. Oh, I love that. That was good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, so 
if, if he leverages a little bit more, he ends up making a lot more money, and he doesn't have to do the work. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, um, what a what a smart way to go. But the point I was getting at is is that on on one of these uh, on a lot of these farms, on more than one, he was he was wanting to do um, the thing where he does his deep bedding cattle for the winter. Mm-hmm. So for the 40 days where he feeds hay. Then you'll have this this um, um, uh, cow shed that he builds, and um, it holds a bunch of hay, and it keeps a bunch of cattle in there. And then they do the deep bedding thing. And uh, he had a bunch of uh, places where he's like, "Oh, we want to do this at your place, you know, and uh, where we've got a bunch of cattle." And they're like, "Oh, hell no!" Right, because it's it's not a traditional red and white, perfect little barn, which is what they wanted him to build. It was his open sided. You know, pole building. Pole building, exactly. And not a pretty pole building. It was a pole building. Right, <laughs> one that he built with the lumber that he milled on his property. No, no, no or, lumber. It was poles. It was oh, all oh, poles. poles. There was there was there was nothing milled on that whatsoever. <laughs> it was all round wood and just you know cobbled together and good enough. Good and, enough. And uh, which good enough is perfect, but here's here's something that he built for maybe eight thousand dollars, but they want a four hundred thousand dollar barn right. instead. And and so then it's like, no, he's not going to build them a four hundred thousand dollar barn. Uh, he's willing to put that put together one of these eight thousand dollar sheds and uh, and do this. But they're like, no, that's too ugly. You're making my farm look ugly. So so no. It's like so, <laughs> didn't work out. He's didn't he's working through that with a lot of them. But you know he did mention he doesn't. You know, did he say he didn't like to use paint and he didn't want to paint anything or just easy as just get it up and get it working first and then worry about the rest later? You know, I, you, now that you say that, I, for all the slides he showed, I don't remember seeing anything with paint on it. No, yeah. nothing. So, I, you know, his model definitely is just good enough is perfect. Yeah, and, and I mean, like, he does have a lot of systems that are very low tech, but it's like this will last 50 years. Right. You know, and and he's got a lot of focus on, you know, how long will it last? So I find it interesting that it's because you know if you take good care of keeping the the rain off of wood, wood will last a really long time if you can just keep it dry. Right. And so a lot of his systems did seem to be set up that way. All right. <clears throat> um, he markets. Oh, marketing to the soccer mom. Not. And I didn't quite understand what you're saying. He tried to mention a woman with four kids out in the middle of an actual desert. Food desert, yeah. And, and then he's like, well, what about her? Why don't you feed her? Why don't you, you know, sell your food to her? Mm-hmm. And she obviously needs it. Yeah, she needs it. And he's kind of like, I, I didn't understand how, like, but we get, I know we get some stuff on permits that might be like what they're suggesting where it's kind of like people are like, well, how are you going to apply this to somebody who can't read? Don't you have to teach them? And I'm thinking like, why is it my responsibility? And, and you know, it's along the same things that he said. He said, I cannot stay in business and cater to the 2%. Right. I mean, he was trying to say something about, like, I'm not trying to set something up to be, um, I mean, this is what I read into it. He said different words, but I read into it. It's like, I, it's not my job to feed every last person. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, that's not my job. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a way to like you know do the best that I can mm-hmm. and and also I mean he's he's saving the world in his own ways he's trying to to um, uh, make farming profitable instead of people just signing up for the commodity package and and going into infinite yeah. poverty Same too. Yeah. and and so he's trying to like bring farmers above and help farmers get around Monsanto right and and it's like and then there's people coming to him and, and, and I'm not sure if this is what he was saying but it sounds like 
okay, there's people out there that can't afford food. You have to feed them. Or, or why is your stuff so expensive? Or, you know, why, why, yeah. I mean, essentially, he can't stay in business providing product to those, that small 2% market on either side. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't even hear him saying that. It's more like that's not, you know, that's not my, what I heard him say is that's not my problem. I, it's like, right. I, you know what, I hope that everything gets worked out and maybe somebody will open up a shop next to that woman and, and make things smooth for her and somehow figure something out. But it's like she's thousands of miles away from me. And, and it's like I'm having a hard enough time doing my thing for the people that are just within 20, 30 miles of me. And and it's like, uh, so then I think it was like people, so I think it's, it has to do with people having unrealistic expectations on him is what he was saying. But but he also said that, you know, his primary market is like soccer moms, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's like, um, so he tries to appeal, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to find ways to move his product for, you know, um, a reasonable price. And, right. and it seems like he's kind of thinking... No, he, he can reach the soccer moms. He knows how to do that, and there's plenty of them in his area. And right, so, it's a larger uh, buying community to draw from. Yeah, he can he can figure that out. Right. You know, that's a, a demographic for which there's a lot, mm-hmm. and and it's like and he's he's trying to find markets where he can make his systems work. You know, for his, anyway, but yeah, the the whole thing of like trying to people are trying to pressure him into filling certain markets for which he's not set up mm-hmm. and and he's kind of like I'm not feeling it I'm not getting it I don't see how I can do that uh, maybe you should do that right <laughs> and let me know how it works out yay <laughs> okay um, oh uh, he was talking about lumber and and he was saying like for when it comes to dollars per acre he is just doing awesome like with lumber times. Well, there was also that thing about, I think it was 100 times, mm-hmm. and, and he said, um, uh, when you look at, so having a lumber mill, is like he spent $5,000 for a, a bandsaw uh, um, mill, right. uh, sawmill, which, by the way, I think a swing blade sawmill is better. <laughs> That's what I have. And, and, in fact, he said, you should, in he, one of our private conversations, she's saying, you need to get one of these bandsaw sawmills. And I said, oh, I totally would, except I already have a swing blade sawmill, <laughs> which is better. <laughs> and so. <laughs> but anyways, like how, how much he makes uh, milling lumber, not only off his land, uh, or I guess he should save when he uh, mills lumber from his land, but also doing it as kind of a little cottage industry right. for other people. Right. But it sounds like it's maybe his son or one yeah. of the interns or something is, is mm-hmm. doing a lot of that. But but he was saying, like, um, the amount of money that you get paid for a tree, a stump price, mm-hmm. um, is like a hundred times less than the amount of money that you get for the lumber for that tree. Right. And he says the margin in here is so enormous that it's kind of like, you know, to, to, to do it, to sell the stump is like ridiculous. But um, the lumber is, is really where to fly. His and son saved like $30,000 building his house off lumber they milled from their land. Right. He kept going on and on about, and look at the lumber on that. Guess where that came from? Right. That came about 12 times during yeah. the presentation. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, uh, having, a, having a sawmill is a damn smart investment. I mean, he, thought, he went on and on about this is like the smartest thing he's ever done mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And, yeah. and big, big money per acre on that. And it's just, you know, along the lines of his presentation where you're looking for ways to make money that just aren't as obvious. Right, right. And, and he also talked a lot about there's certain 
things that are in farming that you do over um, the summer, but it's like some people are like, I'm going to add in another industry. I'm going to, right. but it's like it requires more work. At the same time, I have no time left. Mm-hmm. And and he's, he's saying, no, you got to find those things that fit in with where you have time. Exactly. And so off time, winter time, winter. What are what are some more winter industries that you right. can do? All right. Um, uh, oh, no one can do everything, and I, which I, I really liked, um, and and uh, I think that uh, you know I know I feel that myself. There's lots of things that I do not like to do, but yet there's other people who like cooking is one. I I am not a cook, and um, other people it's like they just they just love 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 to cook, and um, and they're kind of I, and I know that I've, I've visited with some of these people that love to cook, and it's like some of them hate to garden. They right. they hate to fool with and, and they don't want to um, run a tractor. They don't want to um, get dirty. They don't want to be out there with the animals. They so you find like, those people who complement yeah your likes and dislikes, and you can end up becoming a lot more successful in the long run. It's that one plus one equals three exactly. thing. Yeah. So um uh so he he talked about all the things that he does not like to do. Right. And he avoids them you know, at all costs. And it, it turns out that his wife fills in a lot of those things. His wife does not like to um, um, uh, be a show person, to, to be a people person, to um, uh, go out there. And like, and uh, at the same time, Joel does not like to, to, to keep track of the receipts or the paperwork or any of that stuff. And she is meticulous about that. Right. And his daughter-in-law does their marketing. His son does a lot of the stuff on farm now. So, yeah. you know, everybody has their little niches. And, you know, I'm sure we we'll, might probably get into it later. But, you know, everybody has the little things that they can wrap their hands around and, and uh, kind of call their own. And, you know, they get paid for it. Uh, you know, a lot of it well, through commissions and different stuff. Well, not their own businesses. Their own a business, lot of it. I yeah. mean, called those fiefdoms. Exactly. And so, so he liked it. I don't think that's how fiefdom really is. But, but <laughs> I'm, I'm cool with it. I totally right. got what he was saying. And so he said everybody has their own fiefdom, which basically meant they all, everybody kind of had their own little business of sorts. Yeah, everybody got the opportunity to call something theirs and, and make money off of it. Yeah. And it's like, and maybe sometimes it's part of another fiefdom, and and it's like, you know, so his wife is like taking care of the accounting. That's her fiefdom. That's her. Mm-hmm. That's her area. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, uh, but it, and then his son uh, did that all that amazing stuff. Yeah. The rabbits that yeah, we're going to get into in a little cool. while. That was amazing. Yeah. And um, uh, all these different things. And it's like he didn't even have time for. It. So now the whole is so much more diverse right. than if it was just Joel by himself. And that's something to think about whenever you're entering into. A, wanting to do permaculture with, and, and I know for me, with your family or, or your wife or your kids is maybe there's something I'm good at that she's not or he's not and, and vice versa and, and you can make the system work, uh, you know, one plus one equals three. Right. A lot better. Right. Um, he talked about unfair advantage, and so he, he kind of talked you about like it. From, I, I, I did. I did <laughs> like spirit. Yeah, yeah, and and he talked about it in both senses. And so, in one sense, the unfair advantage is where people are discouraged because they see everybody else has an unfair advantage, and therefore I shouldn't try. Because on and on and on about the unfair advantage, and I can't do this because of that. And and they have more water than me, and they have more land than me, and it's warmer. Why is prettier My neighbor's because <laughs> why is prettier. 
I, I, what was the thing he said about like to till the land you need to have like a tractor or a horse or a strong wife <laughs> and I thought oh man you were going to get hell over oh, that man. exactly <laughs> but it was still funny <laughs> so um, but yeah and then he started talking about unfair advantage and he's saying create your own unfair advantages and, and so then he started you know he had, he had lists of things that were his unfair advantages that he discovered, that he figured out, and that he started, you know, trying to leverage those. And, and now it's like, you know, for, you know, he's like, eliminate the cost of fertilization. So you found a way of being able to grow just as much as your neighbor without any fertilizer. Right. You have an unfair advantage. Yeah, and, you know, he talked about how people truck off 15 grand worth of manure and truck in 15 grand worth of... Uh, of uh, fertilizer, and, and while that's obvious probably to most people who who like permaculture, right, right. But right. I mean, for for the people just getting started, hello. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so, of course uh, along those lines, I mean, the reason why you would do that is with confinement stuff, right? You know, and it's like oh, we got too much manure, we have to we have to get rid of it, and at the same time we've got all this you know pasture out here, we're gonna you know cut into hay, and we need to fertilize it. And it's kind of like, um, hello. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, um, but anyway, yeah, create your unfair advantages. Um, and, and a lot of that comes from creativity and time and patience and, you know, innovation. Observation and innovation. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, the rabbit genetics and disease. Well, I that was still the time. I still don't fully understand. And he named a, a book or two. Uh, I think that talked about where they got that um, line breeding, they called it from, but that was very interesting stuff. So the key is, is that you start off with rabbits, that, you know, you, you go out and you buy your rabbits, and you're going to start breeding rabbits and selling rabbits. And, um, but the, the rabbits that you buy, it's like you've got to keep pumping them full of uh, chemicals in order to um, protect them from all kinds of diseases and stuff mm -hmm. like that, just, just universally, or at least, at least the genetics that you start with came from that. Right. And so then, so then uh, the thing is, is that if you don't, then you'll have, your, this rabbit will get sick of this thing, and that rabbit will get sick of this other thing, and whatever. And so um, apparently while they were doing this, they just kind of were quiet about it because they felt like, you know, all of these different animal rights organizations would come down on them. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was is that um, they, they, you know, kept the, they, they didn't give them any of that stuff. And if they got sick, then they, those animals would um, be harvested or cold. cold. Well, let's just go with the word cold in one way or another. Right. And, and so then they, they kept the breeding stock just of those that were the healthiest. And, and he said at the beginning it was up to a 50% die-off rate. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was incredible. It was massive. Mm -hmm. And now they have um, uh, animals that uh, don't get these illnesses. They just don't get sick after all this time but it, it took generations many 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 generations so here it is like I don't know 15 years later right. and now they've got this you know strong breeding stock that don't get sick yeah and they don't have to bring in any more outside genetics is what I kind of got from it is that right yeah that was my impression too I mean why would you and now there's these animals that are perfectly suited to their man uh, 
management style, their, um, the, the way in which they keep their animals and feed them, and their environment. So uh, they have, and, and they're good meat, meat animals, which is what they end up using them for. Right. And they've so, got a good meat business with right, them. Right, right. But, um, yeah, no, they don't medicate them in any way. And, and, in fact, Joel talked at great length about not medicating anything. Right. What, what was that example? The black leg or yeah, something? Yeah, and, and how, uh, you know, they say that you're going to lose this animal if you don't medicate against it but uh, or vaccinate against it. I, I like what he said about how conventional farmers, they think that there's a disease fairy. And, and that, um, you know, the disease fairy floats over your animals and gives your animals diseases unless you go and you vaccinate them against that or, or somehow medicate them when they get sick or something like that, this, this disease fairy. Whereas Joel's position is, is that if they ever get sick, he did something wrong. Yeah, and it's his fault. It's his fault. He takes full ownership. Whereas the others, the other farmers, it's like, oh, no, no, there's the disease fairy that just right. goes out and gives animals disease, and it's not my fault. It's right. the disease fairy doing it, and um, I just have to, and my responsibility is to um, uh, vaccinate and medicate, you know, and and, and that's the chemicals. right thing to do, whereas when he talks about one of his cows had too many flies, that yeah. animal was sold either them. sold or butchered. Yeah. Yeah. butchered. yeah, cold in one way or another. Right. Um, and and, it, and that's creating stronger genetics within his herd. Right. So he's got strong genetics, and he doesn't need to medicate them in any way, shape, or form, because after all, that's kind of expensive, and that's kind of creepy. Yeah. And so, um, and then he talks about one time uh, an animal died from blackleg, and it's like, okay, he's all over it. Like, why? What is this? And he talks about how he goes back to these, uh, he's got this massive collection of books and magazines and stuff from before 1940. Yeah. And, and that um, the reason is is that nowadays it's like, oh, you've got black legs, and then you, here's the chemicals that you use. And so he goes back to this older stuff to, to get all these different solutions. That may talk about environment and, you know, clearing out, uh, you know, it, it, areas where pests could be or just whatever it is. Right, right. Well, here's what it's caused by. And so right. finally, so with the black leg, he found out it was caused by um, thorns. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, okay, they had put the salt block in a big blackberry patch. <laughs> and it's like, okay. So they pulled the salt block out of the blackberry patch. Right. And then they got rid of the blackberries and then no more black leg. Yay. And so whereas, whereas all of the other stuff that they read is like once one gets black leg, they all die of black leg unless you give us money for vaccination. Yeah. And the answer to that could be so simple as pull your salt block out of the blackberries. Right. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, so learn about it. And, and, uh, and, but he also kind of feels like modern information just isn't cutting it. Although I hope that with the age of the Internet and with permies.com, we can build a collection of information for detailed things like that. Right. That, you know, you can find with Google. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Uh, he said that about 20 times, um, and and so um, the whole thing is 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 that um, if you're gonna if you're gonna innovate, if you're gonna do any kind of innovation, your first version is always gonna be lame, and just embrace the lameitude of the first version, and you're gonna get better at it. You're innovating. That's part of the process. Don't don't have the expectation that you're gonna get it perfect the first time, um, and and you're gonna have lots of failures. I think that that's a good. Um thing to live by is is you're going to have those those little setbacks and and you just have to keep moving forward. Yeah. So I because he he was pointing out that a lot of people are saying if it's worth doing it's worth doing right. 
and and that it's it's like uh, there's a lot of pressure from a lot of people that are like oh no stop doing it all stupid and even if it isn't an innovation even if it is just something that everybody else does the first time you do it you're going to suck at it and you're going to have to get better and you use an example of like a, a a baby trying to walk for the first time oh yeah yeah and, and everybody who's around you know that first time and he's much more animated than I am so well, well, when when the baby pulls itself up and everybody's standing around talking all of a sudden everybody notices that this baby's standing up for the first time and then the baby falls down, you don't get on that baby and say, I can't believe you didn't walk that time. You suck at walking. suck at walking. Don't ever try to walk again because you suck. And that's perfect, you know, perfectly suited for when people are farming or starting off anything like that. Um, That you decide to continue to try to walk instead of, you know, laying on the floor. Okay, next we've got the, um, the pigs. So he's got the pigs in that forest. And and it's like and and he's talking about any any longer would be bad any shorter would be bad and that picture he showed of moving the pigs through the forest and how much disturbance they had created yeah so now usually what I do is I mean every, whenever you put pigs in an area they kind of root it up a bit oh yeah and so um, you know what I do is, is is I think okay when they've rooted up about a third of it or about thirty percent of it then it's it's time to move on to the next pasture and um, uh, and then you know. Granted, wherever they rooted, you know, stuff flourishes there, and then wherever they didn't root, stuff flourishes there too. And mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, it's good to have the pigs there. That picture though that he showed, it was like there was trees and rocks and dirt and nothing else. Yeah, everything that was below, um, like a, a foot and a half or two feet, was gone. gone. Yeah, it was <laughs> obliterated. It, it was. was it was a pile of dirt with trees sticking out <laughs> of it. And, and then he showed the next picture. And it shows it shows a bunch of baby grasses coming out of yeah. it, and he says, and now he's he's very passionate about how he's never planted a seed on his property, mm-hmm. other than and I've, I've I and privately I said, okay, you plant seeds in your garden. Well, yeah, except for that, and and so um, and, and we have to think that he had hay wait, in the beginning, but okay, and and there's one other thing, and that is that he uh, this just this year he has conducted some experiments of planting some seeds. But he's, he's like, it, it sounds like his hopes are not too terribly high mm-hmm. because he's like, we're paying like $1,000 an acre just for seed to try this thing. And it sounds like he's um, he was doing a mix of uh, cowpeas and corn and uh, milo. Hmm. And, um, uh, and I think it's irrigated. And, um, and he wants to see how much food comes out of it. But it's like, well... We've got to, in order to, for it to pay off, this much money has to come back because we put so much money and effort into it. Was he doing it as it's, a polyculture? It's mixed, or? It, yeah, well, it's all three mixed together. Okay. And, and it's an experiment. And so, and, I, and he says it's on 15 acres. And I said, uh, you know, when I do an experiment, I do like 100 by 100 foot, you know, I, <laughs> like, because I kind of think thousands of dollars in the seed is kind right. of like, thousands maybe, of dollars. Maybe that's his level of comfort for <laughs> maybe being so. able to make a... Uh, because scale is a big thing that he right. talks about right. a lot. Right, you know? and, and, you know, start small was something that he talked about as well, too. So maybe that's small for him. Right. Well, and at one point he, he talked about, you know, you know why we run uh, 800 chickens right here, 800 layers here? Or what was it? What was it? Was a thousand, was a thousand layers? Is it, mm-hmm. We run a thousand layers in this process right here because it's almost exactly the same amount of time as it takes to run a hundred. Right. And what did he, he called that uh, economies of scale? Yeah. I think. Yeah. And so it's like um, you know, 
it's, it, it's, the person takes almost exactly the same amount of time to go out there and process them for one day and come back. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, but now you're bringing back, you know, 10 times more eggs exactly. every trip. And, yeah. and so it's just... And he, and he spoke about that with having 200 layers versus 800 layers. Yeah. Right, right. right. So um, anyway, uh, okay, where are, the pigs, where are the pigs in there too long? And, and he's saying you need to have that disturbance in order to have the flush of regrowth that comes back. And I was looking at it, and I was thinking, and, and granted, he had a pretty picture. For, for It was like three weeks later, all the little young grasses that, that were coming back and the young plants that were coming back. And, um, but I didn't see any dead snags in there because I kind of think, you know, I like to see a brush pile or two. I like right. to see some dead snags um, in, in this forest. And then plus what was growing back up that I saw, of course, it was only those things that would germinate quickly and whatnot, and, and that looked kind of monocropish to me underneath. It just looked like a bunch of maybe six inch to one foot tall grasses. So, so here's, here's my position on what I saw, is that, okay, A, Joel has more experience than I do with this, so he's probably right. B, it turns my stomach to see that. And I think what I would do is I would start off with doing my 30% my, my 30% rule, and and maybe someday I'll experiment with 40%, 50%, 60%. Because basically, I think what he's saying is is that you know as you get closer to what he did, you will experience better results. Right. And um, and at the same time, you know, I, I kind of wonder if I'm going to get to a point where I'm going to say I. You know, the, you might get better results. You might, and I'm not okay with that. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm willing to sacrifice the better results for, for the, for you know, staying within my comfort zone for what I seek. And that was, that was, that was you know, maybe too much for me. I mean, I could see doing that if you get like a 50-year return on that. Like, mm-hmm. like, oh, they went in there and they totally destroyed it, but they built three ponds and 87 hugel culture beds. So it's like it was totally worth it. Yeah. And the pigs did all the work. I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> yeah, that level. What of disturb- awesome pigs! That level. Of and dis- then there's bacon. <laughs> <laughs> and we love bacon. <laughs> and that level of disturbance for I think most um, people who practice permaculture would not be something that they'd like to see out of their system. So maybe it, maybe there is a bigger payoff. But. Just outside of my comfort zone, maybe. I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of feeling like I want to do my own experimenting and, and see. Start, and, and start small. And, and, and Joel's probably right. And, and, it's, and I just kind of am not sure if I can go that far. But he's, a, he's, he's also uh, in the business of pumping pigs uh, into the system and selling pigs. And so that's what he's most focused on, at growing those pigs as opposed to um, maintaining a perfectly balanced ecosystem, forest ecosystem. So then there's the same thing for the cattle. Mm-hmm. And so when he puts cattle into um, a, a paddock, he's, he does the exact same thing where it's like, this is, this is the right amount. You know, uh, if you do it, if you have them graze more, that's bad, and less, that's bad. And, and it's like, they, they were, those cattle were taken 90%. Right. It, it, it was significant. I mean, it was down to where it looked like it was a lawn cut by a mower. Lower than that. Yeah, it looked. I mean, it looked lower. I mean, like if if I go out and I set my mower to four inches, 
it would have been like I'm leaving behind a, a richer, thicker lawn than what he was leaving behind with those right. cattle. That was like, wow. I, I couldn't believe it. You hear so much when you're talking about... Oh, so there's the dirt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. You thought you hear so much when you're talking about pasture shifting cattle, about only munching on that top third or 30% or however you want to say it, and that was definitely taking it down way more. However, he said those animals may only reach that spot three times a year. Right. So, and, and like you say, he does do it. He does make money at it. And so he's up, he must be right. He must be right. And and at the same time, it's like just seeing that made made me cringe. And mm. and it's like um, and so I I think it's not so much. So so he's probably right, and I am ignorant. <laughs> and and um, I I, I, I need to learn why or I need to come up with a reason why I'm I don't want to go that far or or maybe it's like oh that's 10 percent better than if you take only 30 percent you know and you come back more often mm-hmm. um, I think he got to that level over years of experimentation too yeah exactly so I, I would, which is why I think he must be right and I must be wrong yeah and I would definitely start at maybe something like that 30 percent model that's so typically used today okay um, oh when it comes to biomass accumulation he says grass wins every time. Right. You know, you, you would think it would be trees because it's like, oh, look at those trees. But those trees have been building that for decades. Right. It takes 40 years for a tree to build up X amount of biomass, whereas that grass is yearly is yeah, pumping out. Pumping, yeah. So when it, when it comes to, like, converting uh, carbon in the atmosphere and, and whatever else into mm-hmm. biomass, grass, grasses are the champion. Um, I, I thought that was a pretty interesting one. I would think it would probably be something more nitrogen-fixing or something like right. that. Um, but but um, yeah, you know, there's there are grasses that grow to 12 feet tall and um, on crappy soil. So it's like, well, it's, uh, it's probably definitely doable. Um, let's see, no straight fences. Um, I thought that was actually an interesting presentation. I mean, I know that like about 10 years ago, he wrote something about how he doesn't make his fences straight anymore, and he puts them on contour mm-hmm. as much as he can as a permaculture thing. One of the things that he's drawn from permaculture, and that is um, that he wants uh, that the cows will walk along the fence, and um, by having the fence follow the contour line, they kind of sort of make a terrace. Oh yeah, that was that was a, a neat idea. And then in between that, he spoke. He gave the analogy that it's a ladder, and that the um, permanent fences are those ones on contour, mm-hmm. uh, and those are the sides of the ladder. And the temporary fence is the rungs of the ladder. And as the animals eat, you move up and up and up and up that ladder, right. um, so that uh, you know you ha- you have some sort of structure there. But so then he also talked about like breaking the land up. He's got rolling hills on his mm-hmm. place, and so you break the land up and like, okay, you've got your valleys, you've got your peaks, and then you've got the stuff that's kind of in between. And um, and so then those will be grazed at different times of the year. And also, north-facing and south-facing slopes will be grazed at different times. So, like, your south-facing slopes are going to green up first, so you're going to put your cattle on those earlier, mm-hmm. and then when you start getting into where it's starting to go dormant on, on those slopes, now your north-facing slopes are coming on, and, and you're going to move your cattle onto those. Mm-hmm. And so then, I think that it's possible to optimize your strategies in such a way to be able to, um, you know, figure out where your animals are going to go at different parts, different times of the year. Yeah, and that was very interesting to me because uh, our property does do that same type of thing, and you know, to notice those uh, little uh, idiosyncrasies of your property uh, are going to help to uh, increase your productivity. Oh. Uh, 
One acre of well-managed pasture can sequester more carbon gas than the herbivores produce. Mm-hmm. So um, there was, I mean, there's been some concern about, oh, cows fart, and that's screwing up the, uh, um, the, the carbon area, the, the carbon in the atmosphere thing. And, and so um, he's, he's, uh, he's citing research to say that it shows that, you know, the, the grass actually sequesters more than they, they put out. Right, and, and that was all in the context of uh, an environmentalism uh, argument that he's received from a lot of people that the running livestock is actually detrimental to the environment when he's saying that that one acre of well-managed pasture does sequester more carbon than uh, than if he wasn't running animals on it. So then he started talking about um, some of the bits and bobs of, of uh, being a businessman. And so like when taking food to chefs, then it's like there's a charge per pound for the food that he takes to them. And then they, he brings them to him in boxes. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's a delivery fee of so much per box. And um, so then apparently uh, one of the chefs, you know, was like always getting a box. And then it went to two, two boxes. And then he was like, well, wait a minute. My delivery fee just doubled, but, you know hell, you're already coming to my place. Why not just drop off the second box? And, and um, you know, so so um, you can tell that he was kind of like, how do I justify this to my client? Mm-hmm. And so basically the way he came up with it is to say, you know what? UPS hasn't figured out how to do it. I haven't. I don't know how to figure it out either. Right. And so this is how you do it is by the box. It right. Takes up, you know, it's the same thing, same problem. Because when you go and you try and get two boxes shipped via UPS, the they charge place. you to the exact same place. They charge you twice as much. Right. They don't you say, know? oh, this, since this one's going there, we'll just throw it on the, on the yeah, back of the other one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For free. For, for no free. extra charge. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Compliment them two, two for one. <laughs> and, uh, and so basically his response to his client was is that if UPS hasn't figured it out, I, I haven't been able to figure it out either. Right. And, and uh, I'm sure that that's the end of that conversation. And, and I will probably use that if I ever go into it. Yeah. <laughs> so not bad. Oh, he said he did a CSA for a while. Mm-hmm. And that he found CSAs to be cumbersome, um, and so he doesn't do CSAs. He yeah. doesn't like them. And which, which I think that his, um, his that marketing, that direct marketing thing that he does, mm-hmm. I think that that uh, where it's like not direct marketing, the one Metropolitan Buyers Club, the Buyers Club model. It smells like a CSA, but it's not a CSA. No, I don't think that he gets money from people prior to like a lot of CSAs do. Yeah, and then uh, you know, he, he's not having. He's selling what he has when he has it to these people. So instead of uh, going through all the kind of little things that need to be done with a CSA, that may not be uh, as easy to do. Did you just close the book? I just closed the book. That was it. That was all my notes. That's everything I wrote down. Um, Wow. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, that was so huge. It was going to take, like, eight hours to go (laughs) through all those notes. I think it took longer to write the notes than to go through them. Well, when we wrote the notes and we're like debating over it, because um, it was like five times more stuff, and right. it's like, well, what are the things that haven't been mentioned yeah, in the past? How do we distill this down? Yeah, how, what, are, what are things we have not already mentioned in the podcast before? Uh-huh. And, um, you know, and what are things that are like podcast worthy? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because, of course, he's got, I mean, he filled uh, um, Full day. 10 hours. Yeah. 10 hours is, uh, of stuff, and we've condensed it down into a shorter podcast. 
So there was a lot of filtering. So yeah, wow. Now, now you've got an idea. So you've listened to 80% of my podcast? Yeah, a lot. Okay, a lot. A lot. And so now um, uh, you get an idea of like what all goes into making a podcast. Yeah, pretty cool. And so it's like there's gobs of stuff that happen mm-hmm. uh, over this, this period of time, and uh, it gets fairly condensed down, I think. Yeah, I mean, from 10 hours to, to two hours worth of going over stuff to one hour of podcast. And there was driving down here, and I still have to drive back, and there's, I mean, there's, you know, and all kinds of things, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> all right, but the key is, is that um, I think I said on the podcast that this would be uh, an event worth coming to. Yeah. And um, it's been a great opportunity for me. I mean, I, I've gone from starting my permaculture uh, trip or experience a couple years ago with reading books and then listening to your podcast, and then going to a PDC. And this week I got to spend time not only having multiple uh, meals with you and hanging out, but also with Joe Salatin and everything else. And I, and I think it's just a testament to how open this community is and how accessible you are. And, and it's, it's really been a great opportunity for me. So thanks. Oh, yep, sure. It was easy. It was easy. Uh, it was easy for me because I got a free place to stay, and um, and they even paid me money to come down. Yeah, cool. Yay! <laughs> more, more money for the empire. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, but I, I think this is my last speaking gig uh, this year until uh, the snow flies. Um, I've been I've turned down a bunch of stuff. Well, you're um, gonna be busy here because of the farm. Yeah, because of the farm, and it's like I got. So in fact, it's kind of weird. It's like we've got everything's trying to get started on the farm. It's like, nope, I have to leave. I've got a speaking gig, and um, yeah. and so yeah, I've been turning all those down. Um, but you do have permaculture voices coming up in uh, March, right? Right, right. Have you bought a ticket? I have not yet, but I will be. Okay, all right, all right. Both uh, Melanie and I will be going to that definitely. Excellent, excellent. So buy the ticket early, um, I because I, I, you know, what I what I want to do is is I like the idea that at some point they're going to say, oh, we're sold out. <laughs> yeah, and you know and, that's not the time to buy a ticket. And and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's because uh, I want I wanted to make it. Uh, I like the idea that uh, that the price is a good price. Yeah. And um, uh, plus the other thing is like a lot of the speakers that we're still trying to draw in, like. Sepp Holzer mm-hmm. and um, Willie Smith mm-hmm. and some of them. I mean, their question is, well, how many people are coming to your conference? Uh, yeah. I haven't decided if I'm going to come or not. And and it's kind of like, well, if we could say we've got 800 already, mm-hmm. then it's like we might be able to convince more speakers to come and speak. Not to mention it's going to be a very well put together uh, conference. So yeah. it's going to be high quality. Oh, I mean, Joel Thalaton, yeah. uh, Michael Pollan, uh-huh. and um, Alan Savory, yeah. uh, um, Jeff Lawton. I mean, you know, it's, it's like... I, I can't imagine. I think like my head would explode. Superstar <laughs> lineup already, you know? And so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. And, and it's like, and at the same time, I would love to meet Willie Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, Sepp Holzer, uh, although... <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it'll be German, uh, but there'll be a translator. So everybody will be sitting there like it's the UN with things in their ears and, and translators? No, it just goes, it just goes half <laughs> speed while he waits for the translator to translate. But um, uh, nonetheless, but, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, can't I think imagine. a lot of people just love to meet the guy and shake yeah, his hand. Yeah. So from what I've gained here between you and and, and Joe Salatin, I can't imagine something like that would just be amazing. Now, have you read his books, Joe's books? Uh, I have about four of them at home. Okay. I, I'd say I've read two of them. So. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Because you know. 
he's, he's, he's a, definitely a brilliant man, mm-hmm. and, and he's got a, a lot of uh, excellent stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and I, in, in fact, when I first um, when we first got out of bed, and I first got into my car, and we're heading into the thing, I said, okay, I gotta confess, I've only read four of your books, but those four books, I read each of them four times all the way through. And I've got several more that I've browsed like a dozen times each, but I feel shame that I haven't read them all the way through. Right. So um, anyway, and he's like, no, no, that's okay. And of course, he has no idea. I'm just some guy. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just some guy. I don't know about that, but uh, hopefully. Well, by the by, the time that we got done with breakfast, then then I wasn't just some guy. Then he was think. picking your brain. Then he was he was yeah, but but um, and then and then um, when we had dinner, then he wanted to come have dinner with me. Yeah. And and so we hung out, and he kept asking. You know, we we, we argued about Twitter for a while. He started <laughs> up a Twitter account, and I said, "Yeah, Twitter uh, just uh, hasn't done anything for me." Yeah, me. You know, but, maybe it's just because I don't know Twitter. Yeah. Now you know, you know a lot about that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess in my uh, previous life, it was uh, sales and marketing and internet marketing and doing websites and all the social media stuff. And I've maybe I'm just not doing it right. I don't know, but not a lot of. Uh, Big real tangible return from stuff like uh, Twitter. So, um, and I think I think that your story is probably similar to a lot of the pod people, and it's like in a corporate job, mm-hmm. got to get out of that and go do some permaculture, right? You know, and um, how to pull that off? And, and at <laughs> yeah, the you same know, and time, think about it as you know, a business person, where I I do have a family with two little ones, and and how am I going to make this work? And all in all, what I've learned from Joel's thing was a lot of little tidbits to flatten my learning curve. I got hit with a question on this trip from somebody where it's like, uh, and, and it was a Microsoft guy, like, <laughs> you deserve all the suffering you're going through, man. <laughs> totally. If you're listening to this podcast right now, <laughs> so so he's got 12 acres. And um, it sounds like his next door neighbors spray, spray, oh, but that. they're really considerate because they call and they say, "We're about to spray the hell out of everything. <laughs> you might want to, you know, cover Batten down the hatch. You might want to put a layer of plastic over your entire farm <laughs> <laughs> because we're fumigating the county. Yeah. And uh, you oh, know, it's kind of like, bad. and and it's like uh, there's just going to be overspray, and that's, yeah. you know, and it's like sucks to be you next to us. Yeah. Um, so but hey. Final, um, well, and when they when they told me this, and they're like, okay, so we're trying to figure out what we need to do, and I said, okay, step one, move. <laughs> uh, it's like I mean that what would do you, be what do you do at that, point? that would be utterly unacceptable. It's it's like I so a lot of the people, so some of the deep roots people that mm-hmm. that have already paid and they're into the deep roots package. It's like they've been looking for like years. And it's like, okay, we found ourselves a beautiful 10 acres, but it's right next to Sprayville. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and there's just overspray. And there's, you know... And that's uh, tough to mitigate a yeah. problem like that, even with large berms or culture beds or windbreaks or whatever. Yeah, and then they go to another one that's like right next to the highway. You know, and it's like, uh, or And it's like every one, it was like, you know, these, these major things, either on the property itself, like, okay, all I see on this property is grass. <laughs> um, Why is that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I detect persistent herbicide. Right. You know, and uh, um, so everyone, it's a challenge, 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 challenge. Or, or it's like, okay, the soil here 
is gravel. All you've got here is some cheap grass and a lot of gravel. And um, <laughs> there's no reason to make it harder on yourself to start out with. So that's why. So, so like the people that have been coming to the Deepers package have been saying, like, you know, they're they're just. Um, to have an acre in the middle of 200 acres of permaculture surrounded by uh, the United States of America forest land um, and maybe the timber company, then it's kind of like, okay, you know, now your neighbors, you know your neighbors aren't spraying, and, right. and you can have your little utopia in the middle of that. Um, but, but yeah, these guys, um, so it's like, okay, for some reason, they didn't say why, for some reason, they cannot move. So, I'm <laughs> Microsoft guy. <laughs> Sucks to be you. Should have used Java. <laughs> so um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, so we talked a bit about it. It's like I was just saying, you got to do berms along the border of the sprayer, and then you got to grow the biggest trees you possibly. I mean, the tallest, because if they're going to go and they're going to spray with a plane. Yeah, then, then the plane has to pull up earlier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 or or the plane does that crashy thing, you know, and into your giant sequoias. <laughs> hey, and when they crash, that costs money, you know. Yeah. It's like you would be just causing them some expense. Right. So, um, uh, right along the top edge of your 15 foot tall berm, put in some trees that just grow giant size fast. So some of those hybrid poplars would be a good place to start, mm -hmm. and then uh, have those be your pioneer species, and then grow something else in between them and just um, you know get the biggest possible trees that you can and try to make a, a, a physical break in between your the two properties um yeah yeah and I mean that, that'll also help to eliminate some of the drift just from right. wind mm -hmm. and it'll also help I mean, just by reducing wind in general it helps to improve all permaculture properties right you know because it reduces desiccation so um Anyway, that was, I mean, I got, I got hit with a lot of different questions, but that's the one that just popped in my head. Just yeah, now. and I, I found a ton of value in, in those areas where I got to sit with you or around you, and you got hit with all those questions, and, and you, you know. I think I did a good job. I showed up yeah. uh, an hour early on the day before, and um, there was another gal presenting, and um, I think I did a good job of biting my tongue and letting her present. Was it a soil scientist from... No, she was a veterinarian. Was veterinarian, that's yeah. right. And, yeah. and um, I think we were talking about uh, pathogens or pests in... in like parasites. Parasites, thank you, in, in those animals. And I had about, for just the, the hour that I was there, and uh, I think I had about eight hours of comments, but I think I limited myself to right. a minute. Very respectful. I thought I was doing a good job. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and and later, uh, uh, she came and asked me lots of questions. So yeah. um, we, we had a, she and I had a great chat. Yeah, it, it was, it's been a good time so far. And we still have uh, a week left and looking forward to Owen. Yeah, Owen will be good. Owen will be good. All right. Um, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about the brilliant Joel Salatin homesteading, and permaculture all the time.